You are listening to Pangea Cast, the digital voice of Pangea Church in Seattle, Washington. We are a church that follows in the way of Jesus to inspire others in the way of love. Visit us in person on Sundays or online at seattlepangea.com. Today, though, we're in this series called At the Table, and a couple of things that really, really interest me. Uh, food. Food is really interesting to me. I grew up a picky eater. I've expanded my palate a little bit, but when I like food, I like it a lot. I'm the kind of person, yeah, thanks, a little bit. Um, When I go to a restaurant, if it's, like, if there is a thing I like, I get it every time, and I do not get tired of it. It is just like, there's one thing I get, and I'm always going to get it. And if I deviate from that, it's just because I'm feeling extra excitable. But it's very rare that I go outside. I, I mean, I can go to the same place and enjoy the same thing. In fact, sometimes I can like something so much that I could eat it daily for a very long time. I could survive on it. Uh, this is what I did with Panda Express and Orange Chicken when I was in college. I also gained weight in college. So, so it's one of those things that, yeah, like, I, I really do like food. Food is central to what it means to be human. In fact, food and table are central to what it means to be human. For thousands of years, the table has been the place of celebration, of coming together, of party at times, of including others. The table is this metaphor that transcends cultures. It transcends um, eras, right? It, it is just something that continues to be central. Central to the Christian faith, too. The table is a space where we celebrate communion. And in fact, if we really dive into communion, communion ought to be the kind of spiritual meal that empowers us to have good other meals, that helps us become more like Jesus so that when we're in table spaces, we can act like Jesus. But meals are also awkward. Have you ever had an awkward meal before? Awkward meals are the best when they're, no, they're not. (laughs) No one ever said that, right? No one. Like, no one has ever said, awkward meals are great. You know, I, I just don't know anyone who's into that. Because awkward meals often mean you're now boundary keeping, right? When it's an awkward meal, you've had to figure out how are we going to boundary management this? How are we going to, like, figure out how to function? And, and it looks different for different people. Like, some boundary management techniques might include blowing up the boundaries and just laying into each other, right? The table can be all kinds of things. But when it's awkward, it's awkward. And we know it. And I think we know it because we know that it's not supposed to be an awkward space. It, sh- it should be a safe space. You know, when we think about God, I don't know that meals are the first thing that come to our minds. That's okay. But God in meals, right? I think God is the one who really invites us to feast, to experience life with God. Meals are invitational. There's hospitality at meals. They're safe. They're close. All things I would say the God of the Bible desires for human beings with God. And the host sets the tone. Imagine God as the host of a meal. God creating this environment, this safe place, this space where you can just be you. 
But many of us, of course, are conditioned to believe that God is a bunch of things that aren't safe, that aren't um, inviting or invitational. God is distant, angry, lawkeeper, aloof. And so because we often have these ideas about God, we can easily imagine in the metaphor that God's actually a bad host. That God is an unsafe host. But I, I just look at the Bible and I, I look at the New Testament and I, I just see a God who is utterly invitational, utterly welcoming. Even when we run far off, this God says, no, 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 you belong here. You belong with me. When we struggle to keep faith, you belong with me. Jesus, I think, wants to feast with us no matter, no matter how lost we might be. You know, meals in movies are really interesting to me. Meals in movies are always fascinating because meals in movies do something that are really central to trying to create a narrative, right? Because when you're watching a meal in a movie, sometimes you're just watching, but you're learning a lot about characters by watching them eat. There's a lot of unspoken things that meals can actually do in a story. Someone analyzed this and put a YouTube video together. So let's watch. You two do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, and I don't complain. What's so important about a dinner scene? And why would a director waste their time on something so simple? That's what we're going to focus on today. So welcome to Now You See. So dinners are really important. Meals are really important. They help us understand some of the relational dynamics of what's going on in our lives with others. And um, the Bible really emphasizes it, I think, for lots of reasons because of those dynamics. And if we were to talk about our own experience of table and space and safety, I think we would have to be honest, and some of us would say, that is a, a place of joy. It's central to our rhythms. This is how we find rest and connection. I think others might kind of have a different response to that. Maybe the table has a lot of painful connections to your story. Maybe that was a space that wasn't safe for you growing up or isn't safe now for some reason. Relationships and meals gone wrong can come up to, a, to our awareness really quickly. We may even have been excluded, not welcomed, where maybe metaphorically there's a table and we just don't get to sit at it. And so it's with this understanding of how important the table is for community and how important it is in the Bible that I want to look at one chapter of scripture, and this is going to be Luke chapter 15. It's a very famous chapter, and Jesus in this chapter is going to tell us three different parables, and we're going to look at them all kind of quickly, but it's really important that we sort of have the setup and we understand the context for these parables. And so in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, it starts like this. All the all the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These legal experts, right? These are, these are people who study the Bible, study the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and figure out what it looks like to be a good Jewish person in the first century under Roman occupation. And they come up with this idea, it is our legal, op you know, legal opinion 
that Jesus is breaking rules because he's eating with the wrong people. That's their expert opinion. He's a problem because he eats with these people. It's a pretty fascinating expert opinion because some of us would say, well, get over it. Let him eat with who he wants, right? Like it's his deal. But in that world, who you ate with said everything about who you were, everything about your identity with others, and everything about your fidelity to the God of Israel. So it wasn't just a simple act of saying, ah, I'm going to eat with them because I feel bad for them. It was, as soon as you eat with them, you are including them into something. You were saying they have value. You are saying they matter. And so I want to start with a, an idea, and then I'm going to kind of give you a quote about this idea. But Jesus shows them that God dines with anyone willing to show up to the kingdom celebration. Now, there's, there's a few words in there I want to unpack. Kingdom. Kingdom's a metaphor that Jesus uses, the Bible uses over and over again to talk about this gathering of the way of Jesus, this gathering of the way of God. Uh, party is another metaphor. I think we identify better in modern world dynamics with party than we do kingdom. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but, but kingdom isn't uh, meant to be the kind of kingdom that you would see around you in Jesus' day. It's actually used ironically because for Jesus, the kingdom of God is everything that other kingdoms aren't, right? So, so Jesus actually uses the word kingdom to negate against other actual earthly kingdoms. To say, if you think that's where all the power, authority, and goodness lies, is in the system of governing the world, the way of God is like inverting all of that. Uh, Jesus models this inversion through how he treats women, how he uplifts the poor, how he eats with people outside of the fold, right? This is how Jesus does celebrating. And so he's basically saying, look, there is a celebration happening, and I'm going to invite whoever I think needs to be at this celebration. And so in one breath, he can invite people who are called sinners. He can, he can invite people like Nicodemus. He can invite people, you know, there's all kinds of people Jesus will invite to be with him. There's a scholar who has done, most of his work is on the parables, at least that I'm familiar with, uh, Robert Farrar Capone, and he really frames this chapter well, so I wanted to give you an extended quote by him, and we can continue just unpacking this chapter, but he says, the metaphor of a feast was common in, uh, was a common Jewish picture of the eschatological salvation. I'm going to stop there, big words, eschatological. This is a word that just means the ultimate hope, the thing we're hoping God does in the end. So in the end, it'll be like God feasting with God's people. That's what this is saying. You follow? Let's keep going. And the fellowship of Jesus with his disciples and those who followed him is to be understood as an anticipation of the joy and fellowship of the eschatological kingdom, that future day. He was fulfilling his messianic mission when he gathered sinners into fellowship with himself. Luke records that one of the main grounds of criticism by the scribes and the Pharisees was the fact that Jesus received sinners and ate with them. All three parables that follow emphasize the fact of joy at the recovery of lost sinners. The central truth is the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but it is 
Um, but it is a joy that was anticipated on earth in the table fellowship of Jesus and repentant sinners. Let me say this again. So, so what, what the author here is trying to help us understand is that God has a vision for what the world ought to be. And someday God plans to accomplish that for the whole universe. And so right now, every time a hodgepodge group of people are sitting at the table together, honoring each other, loving each other, listening to each other, this is a picture of what God intends the world to be like in the future. And so what this chapter is doing is it's saying, when things are all made right, it will look like this. When things are all made right, these people you call sinners are going to sit right next to me. These people that you call outsiders are going to be insiders. And then we have to place this in the context of Jewish understandings of reality. Because pretty much if you're a Jewish person, you're kind of an insider. So it's not as though these are people who are like the non-Jewish people out there that are definitely doomed for eternal this or that. This is like people within Judaism that are called sinners because they're not, Jew they're not doing Judaism right in these people's eyes. Does that make sense? So these are people within the fold that are doing it wrong. That's a sinner. Someone who is walking away from the way it ought to be. So, again, I think it, for me, as I think about this, I want to emphasize something that I think is central this morning, that Jesus wants to feast with us no matter how lost we might be. No matter how lost we might be, no matter how far off we might be. Lost might mean struggling to trust God in a significant area of our lives. Right? We can be Christians and be lost in ways. I don't think we can just simply say, oh, this is about people individually getting saved and that's all this is about, so I don't have to look inward. I think actually it's possible to be lost and still believe in God, still follow Jesus in some areas of our lives, but to feel just lost. Like, what am I doing? It feels directionless. It's also very possible to be lost and, and struggling just simply to figure out where you fit in the world. Who am I? There's all kinds of ways we can be lost. And in fact, um, Jesus notices those ways. And sometimes the way we pattern our lives include that. And so we could be the kind of lost people who are doing things exactly the wrong way. And for whatever kind of lost person we might be or might struggle with being, uh, Jesus says, hey, let me tell you three stories about God's posture towards even the people that don't seem like they fit here. And I want to invite us to consider how we all sometimes feel like we don't fit with God. So the first parable, and we're not going to read all of them. The first parable, I, I call it the 99 to 1 parable. Basically, there are these sheep, and one goes astray. Maybe you've heard the story, and Jesus tells this parable, this story of the shepherd who says, I'm going to leave you all here, hang out, don't go anywhere, and runs and seeks out the lost sheep and says, I need this lost sheep, and rejoices in finding that sheep, brings it back. And why is that a big deal? Because just like the shepherd sees the one person who's wandering off, God sees the one person who needs to be brought back in. God sees and goes after the one. The other one, the lost coin parable. 
the lost coin parable, is a joyful celebration that erupts in heaven when someone who has wandered off is found. It's kind of like when you lose a coin, you've looked throughout your own house, Jesus says, and then all of a sudden you've done, you do some cleaning, and, and there it is. Jesus says that's a big deal, and it's even a bigger deal when someone who is lost like that coin is brought back in to the center. And so, excuse me, and so that sets us up for probably the most famous parable, one of two of the most famous parables in all of Jesus' teachings. And it sets us up to ask a bunch of questions about this parable that I think are going to be helpful this morning. So let's, we're going to, I can't talk, dive, not drive. There's no driving in the first century, at least not cars, but we can dive into this. So verse 11, this is going to be the whole story. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. I'm going to stop for a second here and just set up the story. So if you're a Jewish person in the first century and you're listening to the story, you're also hearing in the same breath that I want, Dad, the thing you're supposed to give me when you die. And I plan right now in this moment to take what is due me, right? I'm going to take my due, and I'm going to leave because you're basically dead to me. That's how radical this would sound in the first century. It's not like, hey, I'd love some money. I want to go live it up. It's, there, there is a, an honor-shame dynamic at work here. And the, the son is assuming the place of honor and shaming his father and saying, you don't matter to me anymore. I just want to go do my thing. You're dead to me. Give me my money. Of course, he lives it up, and in verse 14, picks up the story and says, when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. I think we probably can guess why pigs are significant in the story. Jesus didn't pick other animals. He, he, he's already used sheep, so that's out. You can't tell two sheep stories in a row. So he's like, okay, um, oh, pigs, because he's clearly like outside of the boundaries, you know? For Jewish people, pigs are considered unclean. And so as an unclean animal, we know that he's really far out. He's not in Jewish territory, most likely. And he is among what they would have despised. He's at rock bottom. So in verse 17, when he came to his census, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son, Take me on as one of your hired hands. 
So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then he said, then his son said, Father, I have sinned against you, or sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because the son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The, the story that we're in the middle of here is just remarkable. I mean, it's absolutely counterintuitive. The son who said, I'm going to dishonor you. I don't want any part of you. You're basically dead to me, comes home. And the first reaction of this father is, I am, I'm wide open. I'm moved with compassion. I'm not going to ask any questions. Just come. Just let me hold you. Let me be with you. Let me love you. And oftentimes, when it comes to faith and when it comes to our own journey, I, I think this happens. Maybe you haven't been as far off as a prodigal son, but maybe you've, you've found yourself just kind of saying, you know, I'm struggling in this area. I, I don't know if I'm connecting to God. I don't know if Jesus even really fits anymore. And then something happens and it invites you to reimagine, like, is, are, those, are those questions, are those things that are pulling me away from God really worth it? And maybe you've even found yourself running back to God for various reasons in those seasons of life. Running back to the Father in the story and, the, you know, the Father, God, is often spurred on by our needs. And that's okay. Let's just call that okay. You, you may be walking through something in your journey somewhere along the way that makes you realize, I had something going for me with Jesus. I had something going for me with God, and, and I, I backed off for some reason in this pocket of my life or my whole life. And it's okay. Because the, the God figure in the story, this father, he's like, just come, just come. Let's celebrate. Let's go sit at the table and eat the best of our, our food together. Let's be together. Before we get too much further into the story and move towards some discussion, I, I want to frame it a little bit more and simply say there's two layers to this story that are really important. There's actually more than two, but I want to highlight two today. Uh, the first is that you have to remember that the Jewish people in the first century have moved through a long extended season of suffering. They have been in exile in Babylon a few hundred years earlier. They have come back from exile. They've been conquered over and over by other nations so that although they still are, are in the land, they're back from exile, they're still sort of like, where's Where's our glory? Where's our autonomy from all these empires? Where's our sense of stability? And they don't have it. 
And in a very real way in the first century, people are still experiencing a sort of spiritual exile because they're wondering where the glory of God has gone because it seems fairly absent. It's a very important context. In one sense, what we see in the story is Jesus saying, look, if you don't get on board with the kind of meals I'm eating, with the kind of life I'm inviting you into, you're, you're going to miss out. Like, the Father is waiting for you as Jewish people to reimagine what it means to be Jewish, reimagine what it means to be with me, with God. The second layer, of course, is quite personal. And I think it's a beautiful sort of personal story as well because this doesn't just hit the sort of big picture systemic realities, but it also hits right at home with you, with me, with the original listeners, I'm sure. Sometimes we run to God when we realize we've got nothing. Sometimes we realize I need God. I I need something that works because what I'm doing right now doesn't work. And sometimes we just need to know that we're unconditionally loved, like the son was unconditionally loved. You know, our needs may bring us to God, but it's God's unconditional love that keeps us at the feast. That, that to me, is what's so profound about being a Christian. What's so profound about following Jesus is that it doesn't matter why you stumbled into this thing called faith. It doesn't matter at all. What matters is what keeps you. Why why do you commit your life to this uh, set of teachings and to this idea that there is a God somewhere that created everything that is really hard to experience sometimes? I think the parable says it's got to be because you believe that this God is unconditionally loving, unconditionally good, unconditionally accepting, unconditionally inviting. Jesus, I would say, is a very good host. Have you ever had a meal that was really good? Like, just really good? Have you ever, I can't talk. I think I have a little cotton mouth today. That's why I was drinking water earlier, so all my words are coming out jumbly. I apologize. Uh, Have you ever had, like, a really good dining experience? You know, and, and, And again, these aren't things that everyone does or everyone gets to do, but if you've ever had these experiences that were just like knock you off your feet, like, wow, this was awesome. It could have been at a friend's house, could have been at some fancy schmancy restaurant, could be all over the place, but you know what it's like to just sit at a table and it be like epic. This is something we experienced on our honeymoon. Uh, we did one of those cruises through the Mexican Riviera, right? One of those little cruises. It was cheap enough to splurge on, but expensive enough to be nice. You know, it was kind of in that middle zone. I think our family pitched in a little, you know. And so we, we got to do this pretty cool honeymoon. And one of the things that I remember, besides the five pounds that I gained in a very short time, was the food itself. You could go to the cafeteria any time of day, and they'd have pizza and french fries. I mean, imagine my life. That's just all I need in life. I could eat that every day, all the time. Just pizza, french fries, just waiting for you in bulk. It was beautiful. They also, I mean, the only thing, <laughs> yeah, you're like, beautiful. It was beautiful. Barbecue sauce, you just dip those fries. I mean, oh, I could do that all day. But there was also like the real dining experience that, that required you to dress up a little bit, which I was like, that's stupid, but I did. Brought some nice clothes, you know, 
and we'd dress up. We sat with the same people the whole time on this cruise. And it was awesome. Not only was the dining service just amazing, the waiter was just, I mean, just excellent. But you could try anything you wanted as many times as you wanted at each meal. So, oh, you have a burger and steak? Yep, <laughs> I'll have them, right? Like you, you, there were no limits to what you could try unless it was gross and then you didn't try it. But things that look good, good, right? You tried. That's how excited I am about this memory from 13 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, you could have a burger, you could have whatever. You could even have escargot, which I like to call no. Just don't do it. Uh, snails or ugh. But I did once. And you know what? It was fantastic. It was just one of those experiences that you, you don't forget. Now, that doesn't translate exactly into what we're talking about today, but it just kind of opens you up to the reality that, like, you, you probably have had some really bad experiences at a table setting, but maybe you've had some really good ones. And I can just open us up to saying, what was so good about it? The conversation, maybe the total experience of the host, maybe. For us, it was both on this honeymoon. We made some decent friendships there that we sparked up, but we also just were hosted so flippin' well. And we knew because of that, that we would remember this the rest of our lives. And that, that's, I think, what Jesus is getting at. That, hey, if Jesus is hosting this meal, if Jesus is hosting this experience, this life, this feasting with God kind of life, how could you expect it to be anything but exactly what you need? How could you expect it to be anything but epic? How could you expect it to be anything but accepting of all of who you are? You can't have an awkward meal with Jesus because Jesus invites you to just be yourself. And he's safe enough to be yourself with. I want to kind of lean into it that there's this other part of the story. We're going to read it in a moment, but the end of the story is actually a story of resisting that invitation. Resisting that opportunity. Some people resist God's feast. And, and it's, it's very understandable. Life is hard. Our world is hard. And so, of course, people are going to have all kinds of reasons for saying, you know, I can't do that. I don't, vulnerability with God, like that sounds too much. That sounds crazy. And, and it, it makes sense. And I think we have to have a lot of compassion and grace for ourselves when we're in those spaces, for others who are in those spaces. I mean, there's also the whole expectation thing. Like, if I'm going to become intimate with God, it's probably going to upend some of my own expectations about what life should be like. It's going to invite me to like people that I don't want to like, hang out with people that are different than me, go outside of the norms and my patterns. And so it, it makes sense. And then there's the whole, like, comparison thing. Like, why— like, there's, there's this other person over here, God, that clearly you like more than me. I don't know if you ever felt that way, where you've had a situation where you're like, my life's not going the way I want, but look at theirs. They're, Molly McChristian over there has got it all, all good. I know, I just came up with that. It's pretty good, right? <laughs> Molly McChristian. Yeah, I'm sorry, Molly. 
But I mean, it's, it's like, have you ever just found yourself in that comparison trap where you're like, they've got it all together, and I think I'm a better Christian even maybe sometimes. Like, I think I'm, you know, and, and we just sort of get frustrated and say, okay, God, like, like I'm going to, maybe I still believe in you, but I don't believe in you because I don't think you believe in me. Like, you're not opening up opportunities. You're not opening up spaces for me. Why would I feast with you if you're not helpful? What kind of unconditional love is that? And I think there's a lot of reasons we struggle to go to that next stage of intimacy with God, of feasting with God. And judging them doesn't help. Holding them honestly is the first stage of finding help in that. And so there's an older brother in the story. This older brother comes in and he's like, what in the world is happening? He'd been working because he's a good, faithful older brother. He's been doing all the right things. He's not walking away. He's not running away. He's going to be responsible. He's taking care of dad's work. And he shows up and there's this party going on. And it ends like this. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Verse 25 and 28. This is what they say. Now his older son was in the field. Coming in from the field, he approached the house and heard music and dancing. And then, of course, he gets the explanation of what's going on. Then the older brother, or the older son, was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. Sometimes it is possible to be so frustrated by situations around you, by your context, by those other people who think they've got it together and don't, or those other people who mess it up for all us real responsible ones, you know, and we project our stuff outward, that there is an invitation in front of you. The same unconditional arms are ready and stretched out for you. And they don't look that appealing. They don't look that attractive. They don't look that safe. And here's the challenge, though. And, I, and I, I bear this out. I think the Bible bears this out. I think my own experience with friends and family and other people have bore this out, that resisting God's invitation to the feast leaves us just as we are. We're, we, we're going to be stuck. Like, like, you can resist. You can walk away. You can say, you know what? I'm going to believe in Christianity. I'm going to hold to but putting my life into God's love and into God's life, I, I just don't. But the, the, the ultimate challenge is it leaves you right where you're at. And for some people, and this isn't everyone, but this kind of resistance to God actually can build a head of steam and you actually aren't just going to stay where you are, but in some parts of your life, that interior self is going to actually derail worse and worse over time. I've seen it so many times. But here's what I believe. Here's what I believe the story is about. Here's what's so beautiful about God's table is simply this, that we, with God, we are feasting with God when we find our home at God's table. That's it. The son ran back to where home was. And the feast was prepared. You know, there's this beautiful helpful quote by Shauna Nequist, and she, she wrote a book called um, 
bread and wine, and she's very much into food and curating spaces of hospitality. And, and I read this quote, and I thought, it fits in so many ways. Check this out. It says, what people are craving isn't perfectionism. People aren't longing to be impressed. They're longing to feel like they're home. If you create a space full of love and character and creativity and soul, they'll take off their shoes and curl up with gratitude and rest, no matter how small, no matter how undone, no matter how odd. I think that God wants us to know that that space has been curated perfectly for us. We can't always curate the perfect experience, but what we can do is create a safe experience. God can kind of do both in a lot of ways. God, as the host, can give you that space where you can kick off your shoes, lean a little bit, and just find rest. I wonder if that's what a lot of us need this morning, is to know that rest is possible. I wonder if there's some of us who need to know that even though we feel scattered, that we can feel at home with God and God's invitation to love. I wonder if that opportunity to feast with Jesus in those parts of our lives that feel lost and scattered don't need to be resolved, but just need to be brought to the table. So that's the invitation this morning. What would it look like for you, for me, for each one of us to step into that space of intimacy, to step into that space of feasting with God with a fresh set of eyes and an open heart? Because if this story has any truth to tell us, it's that God is always waiting, always open, and always ready to celebrate with you no matter how far off you may feel.